Hello, my name is Danielle DeVoe and you are listening to Midtown Conversations. This week we get out of the studio and into the Kitchener-Waterloo Art Gallery. I caught up with curator Darren Dowell to talk about the new exhibition, SOS, A Story of Survival, Part 2, The Body. It's the second in a three-part series. Uh, We saw uh, the first part last year and the third and final installation will be next year. And it's all about the challenges of surviving in a world with climate change and war and aggression and sort of what what the stakes are and, and, and ratcheting the stakes up. It's a really beautiful exhibition uh, and um, of course so timely and it features local artists as well and in fact uh, in the course of my tour with Darren which you're going to hear sort of an audio tour of the exhibition in this episode we catch up with Amy Smoke one of the organizers of Land Back Camp to talk about the Land Back Camp installation uh, as part of SOS and then also the new space Willow River Centre that uh, Amy Smoke and Peggy Schmo and others have succeeded in in starting up on King Street down in the Market District. So I hope you enjoy the episode this week. Um, Enjoy hearing sort of an audio tour of of the the latest installation at KWAG. And then of course, afterwards, just head down to the gallery and check it out yourself. Admission is free at the Kitchener-Waterloo Art Gallery. And uh, and it really is just such a, a, a a beautiful and important installation uh, for us to check out. So here is my tour and interview with Darren Dowell and Amy Smoke. Danielle DeVoe, you are listening to Midtown Radio, and it is my great pleasure to be at the Kitchener-Waterloo Art Gallery, uh, one of the premier cultural organizations in institutions in our region, and I am here with curator Darren Dowell. Darren, thank you so much for meeting with me. It's my pleasure. And Darren, you're going to take us around your new exhibition that is just opening very soon. Okay, so we're in the gallery. What are we seeing? Well, we've arrived. SOS, A Story of Survival, Part 2, The Body. A little bit of a mouthful of a title, but uh, the easy way to think of it is SOS, A Story of Survival, is a three-part exhibition with each part, uh, one part per year, over three years. And it's an interesting exhibition model in that we can develop a more nuanced discourse around the subjects that the exhibition is concerned with um, as opposed to just having an exhibition that might be up for three months and you do some great programming and then it's over and you move on to the next thing. Um, This this way we're able to have one exhibition, get into these ideas, have the programming, close the exhibition, sort of let it sit with us, let it grow within us as we grow, as as the seasons change and then next year another part comes and our understanding of the term survival has changed. Um, I think, you know, the, the 24-7 news cycle sort of relies on these stories of survival to keep readers' attention, whether that's 
global stories of survival with the floods, the earthquakes, the natural catastrophes, global conflict, these stories that drive people to keep coming back. Um, but that's balanced with local stories of survival with the unaffordability of everything really in Ontario, of the lack of access to um, secure, safe, clean, affordable housing, uh, the access to food where uh, current estimates are that up to 10% of families in Waterloo Region experience food insecurity. Um, so when you ask somebody what does it mean to survive, you often get very different answers depending on how close survival is to that person's daily life, whether that's through health, these financial um, difficulties that people face, the environmental flags that are burning around us. Um, all of these things are feeding this sort of um, experience that we're all a part of and that everybody brings into this exhibition. Great. So um, who's featured locally in the, in the exhibition? Yeah, we've got, uh, I mean, it's a kind of an amazing list of artists from right across the country, uh, but more, more local and regional artists that, that have worked featured in the project include Ben Gishimo, uh, Amy Smoke, Eric O'Neill, um, uh, Paul Rorda is included, uh, as well as some other you know, beloved uh, artists from Ontario uh, and beyond across Canada. Great, so let's look, take a look at some of the art. Okay, so we've arrived, we're, we're in the main gallery. It's uh, sort of, I, I think of it in three different zones right now. This first long rectangle that we're standing in right now, all of the walls are painted black. The lighting is fairly subdued, fairly moody. It's sort of a theatrical, exaggerated lighting um, that allows the architecture kind of to fall away and the artworks jump out in a different sort of way. It feels a bit more emotional, a bit more... Um, Oh, there's a different sort of relationship between viewers and objects, I think, coming into the space. There's a sort of quiet reflection that maybe is appropriate for some of the themes that the works are addressing. Um, right inside the front door, we have these three huge birch plywood panels that we're using for our title wall. Um, so just very quickly, part one of, these, of the series was about the image. Part two, where we're in right now, is the body. And part three, which will be next year, is the planet. Um, and thinking about doing a series, an exhibition series that ends with the survival of the planet, it would be completely irresponsible of us to start doing huge vinyl graphics and uh, things that are just pure waste, pure plastic waste that at the end of the exhibition it gets crumpled up and lives in a landfill for the next 100,000 years. Um, so for this exhibition, right off the bat, um, we decided to use these panels that... Uh, these exact panels were the ones that we used for part one of the exhibition. Uh, for part two, we literally flipped them around. Now we're using the back sides of them. Uh, the panels are printed with an ecologically certified, environmentally friendly ink from a local print supplier, so keeping it local, keeping it renewable. For the third part, we'll sand off one of these layers and then reuse the boards again. And at the end of the third part, it will just become part of our material inventory where we'll make plinths, we'll make shelves. Uh, we'll just be part of this full cycle life story uh, basically zero waste uh, right off the bat and that's something that we try to embody throughout the exhibition and things that artists like Fastworms also embody in their work thinking of this idea of in-minded matter and the life cycles of energy that sort of keep the world moving keep us surviving yeah it is one of those cruel ironies of any kind of artistic work when you're making a critique about consumption and waste is that art can also be very consumer heavy and very wasteful in terms of the materials that we use and and what they become once we're finished with them so I love I love the 
the, the wood signs. They're beautiful. Thanks. It's, you know, it, when you see it, it's a simple solution. Um, but I think there's many art galleries across the country now that are really, I don't know if struggling is the right word, but becoming more and more aware of the footprint of actually, of the process of exhibition making. Um, aside from the obvious things like shipping and painting and construction, deconstruction, aside from those things, like a really easy thing is title walls, uh, even our labels in this exhibition. Uh, we've just used nice finished tack straight into the wall, so there's no aerosol spray adhesives, there's no foam core, there's none of that. Um, it's little tiny steps that in the bigger picture, you know, aren't going to save the world, but it's little things that we can do that are really easy to just do and, and be able to know that, you know, that's one increment that we've improved. So that's another thing that visitors will see when they come through. Great. Okay, let's look at some work. All right. Uh, well, here in this first room, uh, really this first third of the exhibition has war and conflict as an overarching theme. Um, and the, the far side, we have Stephen Andrews' uh, well-known series, The Quick and the Dead. Um, that's been seen uh, a number of times, but basically consists of, uh, in, in totality, over 700 drawings of this short um, clip from the Gulf War uh, in the 1990-1991. Uh, of course, today we're sort of bombarded with war imagery. It's, you know, moderated subreddits uh, where you can go and just get this information, or even just in mass media, on social media, everywhere, really, you can't avoid seeing it. But in the early 90s, it was, you know, this televised... Uh, access to war imagery wasn't as common. It was sort of a turning point. Um, and images were circling, but they weren't accessible in like a moderated forum. So this work was one that uh, Stephen Andrews had uh, somebody on the ground that shared this video with him uh, of a really you know, intense scene of a soldier, a deceased soldier, um, and there's a fire, and another soldier comes to put out the, the fire that is on the first one, and um, this really intense clip that uh, all together, the 700 animation cells, the 700 drawings are put back together into a, a sort of a digital simulation of the original file that Stephen got. Um, but the terms of the engagement have drastically shifted, where this image that was meant for, for sort of quick consumption, like a news clip sort of thing that you would see and you would, uh, it would pass and you would think about it and then it would sort of be over. Um, by spending the labor, spending the time to, like, hand draw 700 cells, sort of reinvests a bit of the humanity, reinvests a bit of care, a bit of time into this image um, that is somebody's life, the end of somebody's life. Um, and it sort of works against the weaponization of this quick turnaround of mass media and a, a different sort of consumption of these sorts of images that I think open space for humility and humanity. And some people say, oh, you know, this exhibition is uh, doom and gloom, it's, it's dark, uh, and I would say the darkness of the exhibition is that it is recognizing that we've passed um, all of the tipping points, that um, either if we haven't passed them already, our current momentum, our current inertia, uh, even if we did everything perfectly starting right now, we're still going to be carried past those points. Um, and what this exhibition is doing is it's not trying to say, here's the answer to global warming. Here's the answer to global conflict. Um, we're not trying to find those answers. It's, it's sort of realizing and recognizing this is what we've got. There is no going back. In my lifetime, in your lifetime, there's no going back to the way it was. So how do we move forward? And I think 
the answer to that is found in each one of the artworks and each one of the artists that are invited in this exhibition. That's the dark side of the exhibition. The bright side of it is that each of those artists highlight a path toward hope. And I think hope is not something that is innate. I don't think that hope is something that anybody necessarily deserves. Um, the way that I think about hope is as a muscle. And it was partly taken from a Bjork lyric, I'll be honest, but uh, we have to find our inspiration somewhere. Um, and Bjork sang, sang the lyric that hope is a muscle that allows us to connect and that our, dis that our differences are irrelevant. Um, but if it's a muscle, if it's something um, that allows us to connect, you know, as a muscle, we have to work on that. If we don't work on our hope, it'll atrophy and we'll become sort of lost in the darkness of everything. But by finding opportunity to work on that muscle, to develop that strength for hope, not only do we see the world differently, but all of a sudden our potential to relate to each other and to the world around us also increases and enhances and deepens in meaningful ways. So that, to me, is the light of the exhibition. I hope that that hope is what people come away from in the end. Yeah, and we'll, we'll have a chance to talk about this a bit later when we talk to Amy Smoke, because, of course, um, Landback Camp is featured in the exhibition, and, and, and they are doing hopeful things in the community. So I think we do see some of that on the ground when we get out into the community. Absolutely. So um, we've just moved through to the second third of the exhibition now. Things open up a little bit. Uh, of course, the really high ceiling in this room, but now the walls are white. A uh, bit of air, a bit more airiness in this section of the exhibition. And right away you turn this corner and you're confronted with this absolutely massive painting by Kim Dorland. And I think it's a good segue because we're talking about the land. And here I think uh, Kim Dorland's painting shows us a view of the land that many people across Canada would have experienced this summer. Um, news of the forest fires, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's significantly more land that burned this year than ever before. Um, and this is the scene that a lot of people see as flames are sort of licking the, uh, jumping off the trees around us, these lush, thick, goopy, paint-filled trees in this case, but uh, the flames just leaping, licking right off of them. Um, signs of the sort of urban commercial encroachment on the side here, uh, a, an empty husk of a, a convenience store there, just being teased and tempted with the flames. And around the front, we see coteries of skeletons, groups of friends, some of them maybe on the verge of collapsing, but others maybe look like they're dancing, celebrating, reveling. Um, there's a certain reverie and energy in the work. Um, and I guess the question that was asked is, especially in Canada, where so much work is about the land and there's such a strong connection, a, a tradition of landscape art, that what is left of that after everything's been burnt, after all the oil's been extracted, after uh, the water levels excuse me, rise, what is actually left of the land to depict? And I think... You can look at an image like this and see, um, see frustration, see sort of sadness, see a, a moment of loss. But when I look at this work, I, I think of you know, one of the sub-themes of this exhibition is the transformative capacity of fire. And fire is something that destroys, but it's also something that creates. It's something that, you know, to maintain a healthy uh, forest system, it actually requires fire every now and then to sort of renew the cycle and, and make, make space for the, the new growth to come up. And, there is a sort of cyclical potential of fire that I think is maybe picked up in Fastworm's work with the Ukaru-Raku ceramics, which actually require fire as a sort of magmatic process to actually produce something, to turn this earthen, um, 
clay into this other beautiful glazed object that that we can use or, or admire for different things. Um, so I think that's, yeah, maybe something that uh, you'll see in your own visit to the exhibition is fire coming up in different ways, whether it's in Stephen Andrews' work, Kim Dorland's painting, or more oblique things like in the very materials of Fastworm's installation. And actually mirroring the fire on the canvas, there were just flames on a, a news cycle TV screen sort of immediately across from it. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, this is uh, Wendy Coburn's film, uh, protest, uh, uh, sorry, um, Anatomy of a Protest. And uh, this work is a bit of like a pseudo-detective documentary of the world's first ever slut walk, which was in Toronto um, after a Toronto police officer made some comments uh, in a, a press uh, event around an event that happened at York University. And it's this sort of, you know, this discussion of, oh, you shouldn't dress that way. If you dress that way, you're asking. Like, the sort of persistence of rape culture and um, victim, uh, ignoring victims and not supporting people. Uh, or, or, you know, this, this idea of, like, protecting perpetrators. And, uh, of course, a lot has changed in the last few years in this area, thankfully. Um, this, this work's only a few years old, but already you can feel uh, a difference. Um, but this, this work also documents uh, through found footage, through some of the artist's own footage, um, sort of planted provocateurs within the protest that maybe subverted the events of what was intended to be a positive activity. Um, and these provocateurs that sort of set things off the rail and sort of provoked uh, more authoritative intervention in, in the activities and something that we've seen in protests around the world. But... Um, sort of one case of it a bit closer to home, you know, not far from here in Toronto and, and how that actually carried out in this one particular event. But ultimately the work for me is, is where I find hope in this work is in the power of coming together, in the power of protest and the power of standing up for what you believe in. I know, you know we're about to talk with Amy soon and I think a lot of that energy and spirit is what galvanized everything that happened at Landback Camp as well, this like spirit of belief in community, of the strength of being together, of standing in numbers, of persisting when thing, when you might be getting initial negativity, um, seeing through these sort of provocations that are meant to inflame, pardon the pun. Um, and I think, yeah, it's just that reminder of like, we can achieve these things when we stand together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, so the, 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 the line of hope, the silver lining of hope throughout, you know, we do have to survive, we do have to find a way. So what are we, what, what, what are we, what is the call to action for that, for that survival in the face of a lot of darkness? Yeah, and surviving is the first step, you know, surviving is, um, you know, if you, if you, if your body is underwater, it will try to breathe for itself. Your body wants to survive. It's the natural disposition. What we want is the thriving that happens after that. Um, unfortunately, we are at a point where it's still talking about survival in some aspects of like just base housing and food access. But ultimately, what we want to talk about is cultural survival, cultural thrivance uh, of actually coming together in something better than we had before. Um, and actually, you know, survival is a pretty low barometer to reach for. But it's that's where this discussion begins. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. Well, maybe we can move. Where to next? Um, well, I mean, we're right here, uh, literally in the heart of the exhibition, the very middle of the space, uh, right next to Paul Rorda's 2021 work, Tally. Um, 
This is really a fantastic piece. Um, one of those magical things that happened just through the process of organizing an exhibition, Paul and I had been talking um, and went over for a studio visit and really this discussion uh, gravitated towards this object that was just there on the side of the room. And uh, as he called it, I love the term, he called it a, a retired body tray, or a retired mortuary tray. Um, so this was uh, from a hospital in southern Ontario, uh, exactly as described, a retired mortuary tray. Uh, and when you come to, to see this, this object, uh, you'll notice all around the periphery of it are these tallies in groups of five, you know, one, two, three, four, five, that little quick counting notation that many of us are familiar with. When you first see it, you think, oh, it's a tally, maybe this is the number of bodies that have been in the tray before, maybe this, you start to think retroactively. But as you come up closer, you start to see that there's this silhouette, this polished silhouette in the middle of the tray that maybe from a distance you start to have this like carnival, uh, carnival-esque uh, funny mirror where your body is distorted, it's not quite right. But as you get closer, the area where the face is, your, your reflection actually really crystallizes. And what you see is your own face looking back at you from the surface of this mortuary tray. And what started as a retro, retroactive um, reminiscence of, of, oh, are these past events, are these past counts, switches to a future-oriented perspective. We're like, are these my remaining days? Are these... Uh, you know, what are these days, what are these counts promising? And I think something that you looked at, yeah, retroactively reorients towards the future. And that's, again, a helpful thing, a hopeful thing. Um, death, after all, you know, ending on a tray like this or, or, or its equivalent is the only thing guaranteed equally to all of us. Um, so for me, it's, well, how do we use the time that we have together? In, in Canada, currently, we have, uh, on average, 81.1 years of corporeal time with each other. Um, and at the end of that, we go back to the earth. We go back to the stars. And I, I have, if it's okay, just to quote um, a very, very short poem by Nikita Gill. Uh, and it reads, we have calcium in our bones, iron in our veins, carbon in our souls, and nitrogen in our brains. 93% stardust with souls made of flames. We are all just stars that have people names. And I think for me, that's one place that I found comfort um, in thinking of my own you know, corporeal conclusion uh, is this opportunity to rejoin a, a larger narrative, to rejoin this bigger story that, we all, uh, that we all are a part of. And so when I come to Landbeck and, and uh, I see the amazing things that are happening here, I get a glimpse into what could be. Here, more than any other place in the region right now, is where we see black liberation bound up in and in solidarity with indigenous decolonization. The growing and learning together and living off the land, it, it has a huge positive impact on me and I know it has a big positive impact on um, the other black people who come here and are welcomed here. Uh, and I think that's really, really amazing. So, yeah, right across from Paul Rorda's uh, sculpture, Tally, we have this, one of my favorite parts of the exhibition is this beautiful display, um, which is highlighting and really celebrating a range of objects and ephemera uh, from Landback Camp. And really, this collaboration started uh, talking with Amy and with Mengishimo about wanting to show um, the film, Stories from Landback Camp, the short documentary film, uh, as part of this exhibition. And 
the more times that I looked at the film, I kept seeing these amazing flags, these banners, these textiles, these uh, material traces that really made uh, that site have a certain type of energy, a certain type of uh, togetherness, I think, through the materiality. And I said, you know, do you happen to have any of that stuff still, uh, still kicking around? And, Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and thankfully they did. So we have this beautiful textile, which I understand, maybe you, I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but it was actually a recreation of the original one. Um, and it's all handmade and stitched, and it's absolutely just perfect. Uh, and underneath those, uh, underneath that, sorry, two, two photographs uh, that Bang Yishimo took uh, on site as well that, again, show, uh, well, I think yourself, right, on the left? Mm-hmm, um, that's my, my hands. <laughs> and uh, some of the youth uh, that were there as well, and just some of the community, a sense of, a sense of place uh, that happened over that, uh, that really special time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's surreal seeing my child in, the, in, a, in a gallery space. Your, um, your, your rapidly growing child. Yes, growing very much child. so, for sure. I know even there they look so young. <laughs> so take us through, I mean, so much happened from the, the initial moment of land back and sort of taking back space to um, the momentum, to getting so many people on board, to getting the film, and now sort of to, to culminating in having a, a space that, mm-hmm. that, that you're using. So. Maybe take us back to how you know how it all started. Mm-hmm. You know what was the first moment of like we we are just going to take back some space. <laughs> um, it was um, 2020. It was March. I'll never forget because it was March break and all the kids went home and they said we're going to have an extended March break. It'd be like 10 days, maybe 14, and they never went back. So we were at home. It was the first lockdown, I believe. Um, we just, you know, found out about COVID, but it was the um, rising health disparities that we were seeing across our communities. Um, you know, when our communities have a pandemic, they send body bags, um, not PPE. So it was really, you know, in Black and Indigenous communities, um, really rising numbers of COVID. And um, you can't quarantine correctly, you know, when you're living intergenerationally in inadequate housing on the reserve. So all of those things were mounting frustration. Um, and then what we were seeing across Northern Turtle Island were the um, rising numbers of police brutality against black, indigenous, racialized people. Um, the welfare checks that were going on, those wellness checks that were going on, were not going well at all. Um, and it was the Ahmaud Aubrey um, shooting and the, the murder of George Floyd uh, that really pushed us sort of over the edge. We were just so angry and so frustrated and the inability to gather. Nobody was gathering anymore. And, we thought about the park. We were in a group chat. <laughs> I think Bangishimo put us all in a group chat. There were a number of community organizers in, in this chat and just thinking, like, what can we do? What can we do? And it was following the, you know, I think the third largest BLM march um, that earlier that month and that transformational feeling that was going on in the community, right? 30,000 people showed up during a pandemic to, to protest and to march. Um, and it really came off of that that wave of, of transformational feelings um, and mounting frustration. So I said, you know what? I could find a teepee. <laughs> um, let's figure out where we want to do this. We'll just put up a teepee and ask folks to come out safely in, in, in a park, and particularly the back of Victoria Park, Willow River Park, as we're calling it now, um, because of the numbers of, of deaths of black, indigenous, racialized people in that park in particular, um, as well as the queer violence that, you know, I've lived here 47 years. I know very much what happens in the back of the park. So we really wanted to physically put our bodies on this space 
on the land and take back that that safety. Um, and we're told, you know, there were a number of racialized families that would come up to us at late, late at night and say, you know, we're so glad that you're here. We feel safer. We feel safer knowing that you're here, that someone's awake all the time and, and, and creating a sense of community again in the park. Yeah. It was, it was a growing, mounting frustration and anger kind of a feeling that sort of led to this amazing communal, you know, feeling. It was um, from one of the extreme to the next. <laughs> yeah, and it, I mean, and it was so, it, it was so positive. I mean, obviously there were, um, you know, there, there were calls to have allies come and kind mm-hmm. of help um, on the boundaries of the space um, so that, you know, the Indigenous people who were occupying the space weren't always having the emotional labor mm-hmm. of having to justify the, why yeah. they were there and explain <laughs> things. But I do think as a, a way to get more people to really understand the sort of the scope of the problem mm-hmm. um, and, and the scale of, yeah. of what people were dealing with, it 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 really it was so effective. And mm-hmm. did you did you feel like as things were moving along, like people finally understand what we're talking about? Um, no, no? <laughs> not at all. No, um, what it did was sort of shine a light on the um, racism yeah. um, and the white supremacy in Waterloo Region. Yeah, normalizing seeing black, indigenous, and racialized people on the land, just doing their thing, um, should be a thing. You know, um, it was a, a constant from seven o'clock in the morning till you know midnight. It was a constant. Oh, what are you selling? Is this a powwow? Can I buy anything? Where's the food? Is this an art installation? Like, I just want to be. <laughs> I'm just trying to be on the land. So it, what it told me is that yeah, there's a lot of education. A lot of education that people have been lacking and people need to start doing um, and being accountable for their own learning and a lot of language changes people need to update some language <laughs> you know people doing the Indian war cry at us um, in the middle of the park like the slurs are getting old <laughs> you know um, I just couldn't believe what it brought out to see us in the park you know I want my park back I pay my taxes I don't even know what that means <laughs> like um, so it should be more normalized. Yeah. I, I wish it had brought, you know, more of a, a sense of wonder and, and, and greatness in those moments. But, yeah, it really showed us um, what the world needs to know more about Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, and that's, you move into a public space, there's the value of taking taking up space mm-hmm. and, and, and trying to, you know, and, and even, you know, like having space in this gallery like that being part of discourses that mm-hmm. people will see and they have to listen because they're here <laughs> you know there's the um like you're you're being given that sort of bandwidth that space and mm-hmm. then so you also you created a documentary um about the experience can you talk a bit about how how that came about um sure yeah it was actually um a settler ally friend um we met that summer um, had dropped off some donations, a tent and a, a dining tent, and just walked up, dropped them off, didn't even come into the circle, was very respectful, stood back a bit, and then left. And I was like, wow, that is such a great ally. <laughs> you know, it didn't intrude on the space. The space was not for him. Um, and he knew that right away. Um, he so happened to work for a publication. They wanted to do a couple uh, portraits, you know, pictures of us. He said, can I come and hang out with you? We said, sure. We realized this is a really great guy to get to know. He's got his own um, videography, video production company. Um, we started to put together little two-minute videos for, like, Facebook, just to let people know what we were doing. 
I think it was Apollo Cinema that reached out to us and said, hey, can we use some of those little, like, two-minute trailers and put them between our movies? And we thought, that sounds lovely. You go right ahead and do that. And then we thought, why don't we just put them all together and make an actual film? So um, Eric spent, you know, days and days with us. Um, really establishing a great relationship. And you can tell, you know, in the, in the interviews um, how much time he spent with everybody and how we got to know each other. And Yeah, we put it all together and, and then screened it across Northern Turtle Island, actually internationally as well. Um, and the last one, I think it's been screened at 16 film festivals, including Imaginative. So it was really um, such a great visual piece. And I love the youth when they talk about home. They talk about home a lot in that. Um, Jack says it a couple times, uh, a couple times, and Olivia says it. So it's really like a culmination of that sort of protest occupation that we had started into um, a space that was really a, a home for a lot of youth. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I think this is this is one of those inspiring things. I think especially around uh, communities that have been policed and over policed. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of fear about speaking out, about mm -hmm. showing your face, about putting a name to your face, about, uh, you know, there's sort of suspicion. People come wanting to film you and ask questions. Mm -hmm. um, but youth, they're experiencing a completely different world, a highly visual <laughs> right. world. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's refreshing to see the honesty that young people will bring to, to someone asking them a question mm -hmm. and filming it because they're, they're not going to hold back they're not, they're not, you know, they, they will tell you yes. the truth of their situation. And, yeah. that, and that, that's the kind of truth that we actually need out there and circulating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I love that they were able to be so honest and vulnerable and brave in a space, you know, historically that has not been for them. And, um, and in spaces today that, that are not for them. They don't see themselves represented. So creating a space where they're just able to be authentically Indigenous or authentically queer um, without having to worry about the stigma and the shame of that. I think it's amazing. I love when Sky Sky dances around a lot and they'll go, look, I'm brown, I'm brown, look at me. And I'm like, wow, that is amazing. I have never said that. You know, I didn't say that in my youth at all. Um, I was brown, I was different. Sky is very, very proud of that and you can see them sort of flourish in that, in that ability to be themselves in that space. Yeah. And out of, out of Land Back Camp, you know, the... There, there have been some great ideas mm. for how to create more space downtown Kitchener. Mm -hmm. You've had some beautiful sort of proposals for the, the former bus station mm -hmm. location. Um, and a lot of community support around that as well. I mean, I think people saw that as a, as a great intervention. That maybe we don't need a condo tower right mm -hmm. there. We could just put something else there that, that would be of value to the community and of use to the community. In the meantime, though, you have another kind of space. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, Willow River Center. We uh, just got the key September 1st. Um, so a physical space we've never had. Um, you know, it was a teepee in a park with solar panels and stolen Wi-Fi kind of thing just to, to be able to, to communicate. Um, so it's really lovely to be right in the heart of downtown, you know, minutes from... Willow River Park, where Lambat Camp started, and the connection to that, that land and that, that space, the accessibility of it. We just couldn't, you know, be more happy what with the space. What programming are you hoping to have in there? Oh, gosh, you know, it's, it's limitless. <laughs> we have three floors. It's the whole building um, with a kitchen and a courtyard space. So we're looking at clearing out the shrubbery and making it um, a gathering space. We'll have our fires. Um, maybe that would be an outdoor venue for other grassroots black indigenous racialized groups that don't have space 
um, night markets, night concerts, Indigenous art markets I could see, and programming within the center, like a drop-in space for Black, Indigenous, racialized, queer youth, um, you know, cultural teachings, all kinds of access to resources. We just spoke with someone who works for the, uh, they're the Jordan's principal navigator, and they'll come in for um, once a week, you know, to hang out and, and, and service any clients out of that space as well. So yeah, we're looking to partner with other groups who don't have space. I understand um, Tri Pride doesn't have an office. We're like, hey, we have a boardroom. If you need your meetings, have them here. So that kind of um, collaboration as a venue space, um, but also you know as a community space for urban youth. And what is the exact? What's the location? It's two forty three King. It's the old neo architecture um, office. They've actually just moved across the street, so the film on the door will be changed um, this week. Um, and we do have a, a logo that Maddie Resmer designed for us from Western Sky Designs, um, and that'll go up this week. Yeah. So great to be right in the center of it oh, all on King Street. Right, right at the farmers market. Um, yeah, White Tiger Vintage is right there. Like, there's so many <laughs> great shopping. things. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's nice to be able to just go out onto King Street and, and walk around and, you know, get coffee. We love the Yeti. It's a great neighborhood. So, yeah. It's nice to be in an area where there is already a sense that outdoor space is public space and that members of the public should be able to be in these spaces safely in these spaces sure. engaging with their community in these spaces mm -hmm. which we've kind of gone through a weird period of time where <laughs> public space we call it that because that's what we've always called it mm -hmm. but it's not actually for right. the public right that not all spaces are mm -hmm. and i love that we're like right by the market with the community fridge um, and the community planters and stuff we're going to start a garden in our courtyard as well. So the idea of using public outdoor space too for you know food security and all of those things too is really important nowadays, every day. <laughs> so if people want to support Land Back Camp or find out more about your programming, where should they check you out? Um, on our any of our socials, Facebook, um, Instagram, um, we're landbackcamp.com as well. Um, and then we'll probably end up with a real willowrivercenter.com. Um, once we once we get open, we don't have a lot of furniture right now, so we're not open to the public yet. And that'll be um, sometime in October, and our first open house will be October seventh. While the market is happening across the street, we'll have sort of a, a doors open kind of day where people can come in and check out the space. That's amazing! Congratulations! Mm. Thank you. And I uh, can't wait to see the space. And oh, see it's what beautiful! You guys do. It's an architecture firm too, so that's very much like a gallery. They have dropped. Um, track lighting so we're gonna hang photos and we'll do art gallery stuff so youth can um, display their own works and have that rotate as well maybe the lived experience working group um, installation that they had at the library we'll get that over into our space so working with other artists to to utilize as much as as much as of the space as we can <laughs> yeah um, how actually I should ask before how does it feel to have um, your work in the Kitchener Waterloo Art Gallery. It's amazing. Yeah, like I never, me personally, never thought I would be on the wall of a museum or a gallery. I thought I would be on a poster for murder to missing Indigenous women, girls, and two spirit. Really, you know, a, a missing poster is what I saw myself on. So it's it's a little surreal. <laughs> I think Sky's probably more used to it. They're very. Um, oh, I'm in a I'm in a movie. <laughs> you know, it's very blasé about it, but. For me, and, and because I've lived in Kitchener-Waterloo my entire life, it's, you know, and to have a storefront now in King, like, I've walked those streets uh, before. <laughs> so it's, it's lovely to see the representation, too, of Indigenous people, Black, Brown, um, 
racialized folks and queer folks everywhere. I think it, it can't be said enough the impact that on populations that spent a lot of years with people wanting them to be invisible, mm. to suddenly have a space of visibility mm -hmm. and, and have that be increasingly the norm or the expectation. Absolutely, absolutely. We're so looking forward to you know collaborations, working with other groups, particularly grassroots groups that don't have space and land. You know, we didn't get any land back, but <laughs> we're getting there. <laughs> but you got space. You yes, take up we space. do have the space now, for sure. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much, Amy, for coming in to talk with of me. Of course, yes. Thank you. Moving from the land back room, we're now moving into kind of one of the secondary gallery spaces in the back corner, I would say. It's sort of a more intimate room. Is that? And it often, I mean, this is actually... Funnily enough, often my favorite room in every show. Whatever is in this particular room in this back corner, right beside the sort of the multimedia room, there's always something cool back here. And that's true today. There's okay. a tent. <laughs> Take us through. What's going on? Yeah, this, uh, this uh, section of the exhibition has works by three artists. We have uh, some work by John Marriott, uh, Karine Jabulo, and Stephen Andrews are all gathered in this room, um, all dealing with... Um, their own themes, but definitely a lot of overlap here. And I think this is a good place to land after talking with Amy and thinking about land back and access to land, access to shelter, places to gather, places to call home. Um, especially this work by Karine Jabulo, uh, the tent that you spoke of. Um, this is the only the second time this work has ever been seen. If people were at the Gardner Museum last year, they might have seen uh, Karine Jabulo's solo exhibition there. Um, but these two works, both uh, Shelter, which is the name of the tent, and Food Bank, which is the name of this other work along a shelf on the back wall, um, were both from that, that series. And both are addressing uh, really acute local issues, um, whether it be uh, access to affordable housing. I just saw a listing this morning getting into the office uh, on Facebook for a, a shared bedroom that was literally just a mattress on the floor next to another mattress on the floor that somebody was trying to rent for $600 a mattress. And, you know, these are things that are happening. You walk out from the gallery just a couple blocks away from here. Um, you know, there's people uh, living on the streets, uh, an encampment, not, you know, just a couple blocks away. Um, people are struggling and, and looking for a place to call home. And inside this tent, you'll, you'll find about uh, over 60 individual sculpted uh, polymer clay figures. And... Uh, the people that are in here, some of them are on their own, some of them are in small groups of families, small units, uh, they're, they're older, they're younger, uh, all different cultural backgrounds, and for me this work is a reminder that you know, people that are living hard uh, didn't choose that. You know, that's something that can happen circumstantially to any one of us um, pretty easily without you know, the right sort of things happen one after the other, and um, I know a lot of people right now are living, you know, paycheck to paycheck and it doesn't take very much to interrupt that cycle um, and this work sort of asks you you know when you see a tent set up like this and you're coming around the corner um, your initial instinct might oh yeah yeah like oh I just went camping with my friends on Labor Day weekend it was so much fun and as you come around you say wait a minute this isn't just camping um, and I think that's you know depending on where you're coming from seeing this installation could be like a reminder of one of the best times of your life and like memories of with fun friends and things like that or a reminder of one of the worst times of your life and uh, John Marriott's piece that's just right beside the tent 
um, is also uh, smartly on a sleeping bag, so there's a material connection there. Um, but John Marriott's work uh, also has these three-dimensional applique letters sewn onto the sleeping bag that read treason over compassion. And this is a, a clever play on words of a famous quote uh, from the first Trudeau prime minister. Um, and that quote was then taken by Joyce Wheland. And Joyce Wheland ran it as reason over passion. And at the time, this was sort of a motivation for how the young country uh, that, you know, known as Canada um, might develop itself. This idea of reason over passion, that we could have this reasoned discourse, this reasoned debate, instead of making passionate, just like urgent decisions, quick things, um, that that might define the Canadian character. Uh, John Marriott shows, you know, if you place treason in place of reason and compassion, um, at the bottom, you know, we see treason over compassion. What happens when government policy doesn't make space for affordability? What happens when social programs and programs of mutual aid are downloaded through different levels of government, but without an adequate response and compensation and funding to actually see those things through at the same level? I think the results of John Marriott's piece is Karine Jabulo's piece. And I think that somewhere in between all of this are efforts like what Amy was talking about earlier. This is all part of the same discussion. The same people that are sleeping in that tent might be lined up in Corrine's other uh, artwork here, the food bank work, where uh, there's this collection of figures all waiting, uh, lined up to get some food at the food bank. Food bank use is skyrocketing this year. The lineups are getting longer. The banks don't have any more resources than they used to before. And people need to eat. And these are scenes that are more and more common in, in across Canada, across our communities, the places that we live in. And I think, you know, rounding out this wall, uh, this room rather, sorry, on the fourth wall is this, a collection of drawings by Stephen Andrews that shows people, again, sort of picking up on the themes of Wendy Coburn, uh, marching, protesting, standing up for what's right. Uh, each one of these drawings has a date and a location, and they're from all around the world. And again, I think it's that unifying factor that the, the common thing that we see across all of them is the human body. And sure, the features on the face might be different, but we're all stardust. We're all here on the same planet, uh, sharing this time together, Earthside, before we go on to whatever comes next. And to me, this is what real change looks like in 2023. These people that Stephen captures uh, are the ones that believe in something and they're going to do what it takes to make that a reality. Well, and this progression from um, protest and resistance and revolution through war, through, you know, and, and living in this community, you know, we have uh, maybe a visual of tents. We see tent cities, um, you know, on, on Victoria Street, um, in Willow River Park, but there are also people in this community who have experienced that exact feeling of, of suddenly ending up in a tent. We have many refugees in our community and, you know, people were living their everyday lives and then something maybe unpredictable or catastrophic happened and they found themselves living in a tent. So as you say, you know, it's, it's not sort of a, a, an unimaginable thing that couldn't ever happen to us. Events change so quickly. There's a natural disaster. There's something, and any one of us could end up in these like very precarious situations that we see depicted with these these really beautiful, perfect little sculptures of people. They're sort of, I don't know, four or five inches long, maybe, and they're just they're just or three, even some of them. This little tiny 
minute and so detailed, and but also so diverse. They're all unique and different. Um, and it's just really an impressive installation, the tent and the, and the food bank, the people lining up for the food bank. Yeah, thanks. It's, uh, I think maybe the thing that this room begs for more of is that compassion. It's like, let's just be a bit more human with each other. Let's just take a little bit more time to care for each other. Um, let's not try to do this alone. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's the thing. I mean, if we want to walk over to this last room here, uh, with compassion in our mind, uh, we'll go through this curtain at the back of the room into this dark theater space. Because everything is exchanging internal connective energy with everything else. Instead of giving you two benches to sit on or whatever a normal, you know, quote unquote normal seating might be, um, in this space we've actually created two fake boulders um, that are heated. Uh, so when you sit on these rocks, you sort of are reminded almost like, again, that idea of camping, you're outside, you're sitting on this boulder, but here you, as soon as your hand touches it, um, you feel this warmth emanating out from it. And that warmth comes through in the film in a number of ways. Uh, in terms of, again, magmatic processes and this sort of inner earth core heat that keeps life on this planet possible. Um, but it also reminds us of, you know, reaching out and holding someone's hand, of patting somebody on the shoulder. As soon as there's this sort of contact, this intimacy, there's this transfer of heat. And the signature of heat is sort of that trace of our connection, of this potential of what we can do together and you sit on the rock and you feel this heat, you're sort of reminded of this earth. Uh, again, it's another form of hope for me. This, even just the trace of heat between passing between two bodies is a hope that intimacy and care for one another can supersede these extractive policies and policies that are applied unequally, inequally to uh, different members of this community. Um, and sort of a path forward, not just stopping there, but this is a path forward, this is a way of actually fighting against slavery, of fighting against abuse, of fighting against equality, is actually just being human with one another, being intimate, caring for one another in a different sort of way. And when I say one another, that extends to the earth, to all the plants, the animals, that's uh, all equal with me and with you and with everybody else. So if people are planning to come to the gallery and see SOS, SOS 2, what what should they be looking for and what do you hope that people really take away from it? Well, it's, it's a tough question because, uh, like I said at the very beginning, we all have a different understanding of what survival is. We all have a different relationship to that. Um, if, if somebody is visiting the exhibition and maybe um, somebody in their family is unwell or maybe experiencing a period of loss and grieving, they're going to have a much different experience in this exhibition than somebody who isn't. Um, I don't want to ever, you know, it's impossible uh, in, in the first place, but, uh, uh, you know, maybe not productive to anticipate uh, on that level how somebody might, what you might get out of the exhibition. But I, I hope that, you know, on one level, the, the artwork is all stunning, technically, aesthetically. There's a wide range of material. Uh, some of the artists are very well established. Some of them are more emerging. Um, some of them are maybe just discovering themselves as artists. Uh, like young sky. Um, but I think at the end of the day, like I said, it's, uh, it's all coming down to hope that 
Um, it's easy to get distracted with the, the doom and gloom of the 24 uh, 7 news cycle and the stories that they rely on to keep the clicks, keep the eyeballs. Um, and it's not to tune that out, it's not to pretend to live in a bubble, uh, but it's to say, what are we doing next? How are we, how are we moving forward? These tipping points, these check marks, all of these things, we've gone past all of them. If we didn't care enough to stop it then, what are we going to do now? And if the answer is nothing, then everything's just going to continue on this path and we're going to keep seeing, you know, continually rebuilding, removing from disaster uh, to disaster. Um, and it's just not sustainable. There has to be some other answer. There has to be some other path. And I think some of those answers might be what people find in the exhibition. That's great. Thank you so much for making time to talk to me today. Uh, thank you so much for coming. That was my tour and conversation with Darren Dowell, curator at the Kitchener-Waterloo Art Gallery. We were also joined by Amy Smoke, one of the activists and organizers responsible for a land back camp. To revisit my conversation with Darren Dowell and Amy Smoke, pick up the October Community Edition. Midtown Radio has a great article in it. You can also subscribe to our podcast at midtownconversations.transistor.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to thank our program sponsor, Grand Valley Construction Association, and Junate for the use of his song, Lokanita, which is our theme this season. My name is Danielle DeVoe. Thanks for joining me this week, and I hope to catch you next week as well.